Hey there, video game fans. I'm Ben Bertoli, and this is a special bonus episode of Memory Card. Our eighth season has just ended, as most of you already know, but we are already back with a nice little surprise for our listeners. You may recall that we had Daniel Dockery on a previous episode to talk about his book, Monster Kids, which is out now. And now we have another fabulous author in our midst, and is one Aiden Moher. How are you, Aiden? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. And it's awesome you had Dan on the uh, podcast because uh, Monster Kids and, and my book uh, share an editor and a publisher. So uh, he and I kind of went through this process together. And his book is incredible. I'm reading it again uh, because it's so good. So I'm glad your uh, your listeners got that introduction to his work as well. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, he sent me an early copy that was digital and uh, my physical copy just arrived in the mail yesterday. So I am also going to dive back into that. Now, your your book came out, was it the same day or was it just really close to his book? No, same day. Yeah, wow. October October 4th, so last Tuesday. Uh, yeah, same release date, same editor, same publisher. It was, it's been quite a journey for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that they would drop it on the same day, but I guess it's, mm-hmm. you know, let's put all those video game books out there and yeah. uh, everyone can just be uh, really happy and have a lot of reading material for the rest of the fall. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they go hand in hand as well. Like, you know, I cover... Uh, Pokemon in my book, uh, but you know it's a it's a chapter and then referenced here and there. But his is like if you took that chapter and spun it out into a whole book, uh, so they complement each other really well in that way. Now you've written in the past for Wired, uh, Kotaku, Dungeons and Dragons, which is very cool. How long have you been writing, and how long have you been writing about video games specifically? Yeah, so I mean, I've been writing my whole life. My dad was a, a journalist; he's a playwright. Um, so I've been you know a writer forever. Uh, but like a serious writer started around 2007 when I created a book blog called A Dribble of Ink. And I ran that until about 2015. I won a Hugo Award along the way. Oh, wow. And that's where I really got serious about writing. And, you know, I it wasn't professional writing at the time because I, I didn't make any money off of it, but it created the foundation of experience and, you know, networking that I needed to then spin that off into to what I do now, which is like freelance games writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after I closed my, my blog down, that was after I had, you know, my first child was born, we were moving and I just needed, you know, to change and restructure things in my life. And I wanted to write less, but sort of with more impact for each piece. And so I, I jumped ship uh, over to freelance writing and I did the book blogging thing for a while as a freelancer for places like tour.com, Barnes and Noble. And then a few years ago, I decided to get back into like uh, retro games. I, I was I, I've always loved Japanese RPGs. Uh, I kept up with them, and I I played you know mostly current ones. And I went, I wonder if I can still enjoy that old school RPG experience where it's a little more you know like um, esoteric. It requires you to use your imagination to interpret what's going on on screen, like with the pixel art. And, and stuff and so i i loaded up lufia 2 and terranigma and sure enough i still loved them uh just as much as i ever had and, and so i was like if 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 i feel this way other people feel this way because what i also noticed was that not only did i love the games but i also recognized how much they inspired my own uh you know fiction writing mm. I write fiction as well and i was like you know like i, I grew up as inspired by kirinobu sakaguchi as i was by J.R.R. tolkien like those were my two loves, right? Like epic fantasy books and Japanese RPGs. And so like, if I feel that way, other people must feel that way. And so using sort of my 
relationship with the science fiction and fantasy community, I reached out and found a, a bunch of other authors, uh, you know, around my age. I'm in my late 30s, but every, you know, ranging everywhere from late 30s to late 20s, uh, who were also influenced and inspired by games like Chrono Trigger and Fantasy Star and Suikoden. And that was my first like foray into professional games writing. I wrote a piece for Kotaku um, about how Final Fantasy inspired this huge generation, this new generation of science fiction and fantasy author. Mm -hmm. And that really hit a chord with readers and it was really popular. And I had writers of all like stages of their career from like, you know, uh, established writers coming forward and be like, why didn't you talk to me for this? I would have loved to have been part of this <laughs> to like aspiring writers who are like, wow, I never knew I was allowed to be inspired by Final Fantasy and, and integrate that, the things that I love from those games or, or that they sort of like, you know, the, the emotions I have while playing those, I didn't know I was allowed to be inspired from my fiction by those those games and so that really hit a chord and i was like okay like i think there's something here because you know now the the people who were kids back then teenagers back then playing final fantasy 7 or going back further to the nes we're all adults now and there's this audience of of adults who you know it, it, we still love these games for the same reason i did when i went back to lufia 2 and so i started you know i i picked up games journalism at that point and um continued to write about Japanese RPGs like Lunar Silver Star Story Complete, which I wrote about for EGM, and just about how like how these shape us as people, what it is that makes them so like create such a strong emotional ties with with players. Um, what it's like to, you know, to grow up alongside this genre. And so I, I chased a lot of stories like this and they found a lot of success. And and then here I am, you know, like with, you know, a fairly robust uh, career as a games writer at this point games journalist um and that kind of idea of like taking the story of japanese rpgs whether singular or like as a as a genre and tying mm. it together with sort of the you know emotional coming of age personal story of somebody growing up alongside the genre created sort of the core idea behind um the book that i've written which is called fight magic items the history of final fantasy dragon quest and the rise of japanese rpgs in the west and so i wrote it and it's on store shelves now and it's like you know i like to describe it as you know it's a story of these games and the people who made them and play them and so it's not just you know i didn't want it to just be you know an extended wikipedia entry with a bunch of data points like right factoids yeah uh, uh so it's it's built around this core idea of like you know what drawing on my own personal experiences, the stories I have as a, as a kid growing up, what was it like to be sort of like discover this genre, be shaped by it uh, as a teenager, and now to have it as this like incredible influence over the, the things that I like to create and play and share, the communities I've discovered because of it, um, and how those are universal experiences, right? Like, you may not have played the exact same games that I did, but chances are, if you're reading that book, you felt the same things that I felt along the way. Hmm. Yeah, it gives it a nice, you know, personal spin. And I feel like when I'm reading articles about gaming history and, you know, obviously having a gaming history podcast, um, we always like to insert something, you know, ask a question first and talk about, uh, you know, personal history with a series or a genre. And then you can kind of get into, um, you know, the meat and potatoes of the history and talk about how it influenced you further. Yeah. I think video games are so interesting and unique because they're like they're art that requires an active participant, right? You can put on an 
a musical album or a movie and it'll play, right? You can leave the room and it'll keep going. Um, you know, we experience things, but, you know, like with those mediums, but um, video games like books require us to make effort to continue them, right? Yeah. If I leave the room with a video game, it'll just either idle or the character will die and it'll go to a game over screen. Um, you know, if a book, you, you don't read it, it's not, nothing's happening and the story isn't progressing. And I, I feel like that sort of active participation between the player and the game or the book uh, is very similar between those two mediums. And I think that that really makes it unique and then creates a unique sort of emotional experience that we all have, relationship that we all have with the games that we play, whether they're Japanese RPGs or not. Right. Um, so that, I think that's such an interesting way to look at video games through the that sort of bond that we make you know as much of it happens in our head as happens on the tv screen i think and i mean i'll be the first to admit um that uh, jrpgs are like not my normal go-to when it comes to video games mm -hmm. um i mean i huge into pokemon and i played like paper mario games and um i mean on, honestly in the last like year i got into uh, dragon quest 11 I'm, i don't have mm -hmm. as much um, expertise in those areas but that's why it's great to have on a guest who <laughs> does have that kind of you know knowledge now your book is just chock full of different you know rpg games and um, eras and consoles uh, that they were on and we spoke about what we should cover today on the show and you threw out a couple ideas but the one that i was the most excited about was one that you said actually um, you ended up cutting from the book the book, uh, like like the title says, it's the history of Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and the rise of Japanese RPGs in the West. And so that's like the core narrative in the book. It looks at the beginnings of Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest and their creators, Hironobu Sakaguchi, Iji Hori. And then it follows them on their journey to the West. So it's specifically looking at like how did this sort of oddball subgenre of Japanese video game that was like very specifically designed for a Japanese audience. Like this, the early games were not designed for Western audiences, um, but they broke out anyway, and they found millions of fans in the West. And so that's sort of the core idea of, of the book. And, and it always comes back to that. Like how did Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy with these very, you know, like the similar idea, like let's take Dungeons and Dragons or Wizardry or Ultima and bring it to Japanese living room televisions. How did they start with such a similar idea, but then, almost instantly diverge, you know, so that Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest are very different now, but they've each shaped the genre in their own ways. Mm -hmm. And how did that propel, like, you know, this genre to become so big in the West? And now what does it mean that you have Western creators who grew up with these games and are, and are now creating their own RPGs and games that call back to the original Japanese ones? Um, and so I, you know, the book is, like you said, it's chock full of games, it's chock full of stories, uh, some of which, you know, I dive deep into, some of which, you know, complement the existing narratives, but one that I had outlined for and, and did a fair bit of research for, but ultimately couldn't make it into the book was about the Sega Saturn, um, which... The Sega Saturn is an incredible Japanese RPG console. It's like, it's so good. It has so many unique Japanese RPGs uh, that don't exist anywhere else. It also has the best version of some Japanese RPGs that, that Western players might be familiar with, like Grandia, um, for example, uh, or the Lunar Silver Star Story Complete. They have 
versions on the Saturn that just are better than the PlayStation alter- er, versions in some ways um, mm. for Lunar and and then almost always with Grandia. It's a great Japanese RPG console, but not in the West. It just tanked right. in the West. And so it didn't have that impact or it didn't create that ripple effect. It didn't create, you know, it didn't nudge the genre forward uh, in, in any way. It had, a couple, you know, some standout games like Panzer Dragoon Saga, which nobody played or could play because <laughs> it was printed in such small quantity. But it didn't, you know, like PlayStation was like reshaping recreating the identity of the genre but the saturn was um sort of at its heart it was dedicated to being a a 2d powered console which was great when you took that sort of old school style of japanese rpg it wasn't so great to like combat against final fantasy 7 and everything that square was doing with their like 3d driven rpgs it's this tale of this like you know two-sided console where in Japan, it's like, it's incredible. It has so much to offer JRPG fans. But in the West, it just wasn't even really a blip. And I just found that story so fascinating. But because it didn't sort of shape anything that came afterwards in the narrative, it, it didn't fit the book. Mm. The book is already very long. Um, and so I had to be judicious about what, you know, what ended up making the final book. And and the, the Saturn chapter would have been fascinating but it then wouldn't have really created any impact on what followed and so that that you know just isn't the right fit for the the shape the book ended up being in but it's such a fascinating story and um i actually funny enough like the week that uh the book came out i only got a saturn myself um six months ago maybe like my very first one i bought a japanese console oh okay the week the book came out, I got an optical drive emulator called a Fenrir. And so it allows me to like play um, mm-hmm. legally acquired games off a memory card. And so for the first time, I'm really being able to dive into the Saturn library and, and explore and check out all of these Japanese RPGs that just like, even for me and my friends who were obsessed with the genre during this time, like they weren't on our radar because the Saturn was just such a, it was just such a non-entity. Um in the West and with Japanese RPG fans and, and stuff. So um, going back and discovering uh, some of this is, has been really fun. Yeah. Well, and I think hilariously enough, the, the the biggest aspect of Sega Saturn in North American history is um, the announcement and the like shadow drop yeah. of uh, it coming out. And for those who don't know, so this was the very first E3 uh, in 1995 and uh, PlayStation is there. They've announced that their console is, is going to be $300. Um, and Sega gets up and basically says, oh, well, our console is out now. Like, you can, you know, you can go to certain retailers and you can buy it, uh, the Sega Saturn. And everyone's just kind of like, what? Like, are you serious? And, yeah. And I think that kind of messed up their relationship with some retailers because they didn't involve everybody. And it was like, oh, well, they're all going to go to, you know, Toys R Us or Best Buy now and not Walmart because you didn't tell us of your grand scheme. And that is kind of uh, the Saturn's legacy. It was all downhill from there. Yeah. And I mean, I think we saw, you know, Sega managed one more console after that. And the Dreamcast is really unique and interesting for its own ways. But I think Sega was also just at that point in the West, like especially unable to sort of keep pace with where Sony was pushing the 
the games field, right? Like the PlayStation and the PlayStation 2 especially mm-hmm. were so impactful and shaped so much um, that I just don't think that Sega was necessary. Like they, like they misanticipated how much the jump to 3D was going to be popular among players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they started to scramble and like, re, you know, like redesigned the, the board inside the Saturn at the last minute. But then it just also wasn't very good at 3d and and so it couldn't really compete with what sony was doing and and the you know the dreamcast i don't even know how long they supported the dreamcast for and uh you know i think we were starting to see the unraveling of of sega as a console manufacturer at that point and and it just kind of continued in a spiral over the next few years which is too you know too bad because i think their consoles always always offered something interesting right the fact that they were the fact that they couldn't keep up was also probably for the same reasons that they were interesting they were doing different things and they mm-hmm. approached and thought about video games in a different way than, than Sony did. And obviously Nintendo did its own thing, but Nintendo was Nintendo and Sega just couldn't really figure out how to like thrive with that identity they were, they were driving for, which was like very arcade experience driven, right? Yeah. I mean, Virtu- Virtual Fighter was the big one that they launched with. Um, and it was, you know, like a one-to-one uh, to the arcade. And I think that brought in, that got a lot of Japanese players on board Less so in yeah. North America, obviously, but then they kind of had their foot yeah. in the door and they could move forward with other titles. Yeah, I think too, like just the Japanese sort of a development environment also favored like slower transitions between like gaming styles, you know, like the fact that the Saturn offered so many great so much great functionality and power for 2d games that were created in the same you know the same way as the super nintendo and nintendo and genesis and stuff those games like i think that was appealing to japanese developers and so they were you mm-hmm. know like they glommed they glommed onto and they were attracted to the saturn because it was easy to make games that were familiar to them for their the development processes and also familiar to japanese players yeah um and then sony came in and sort of ate their lunch with with 3d technology but you know like there was it carved out a really great niche it's such like i always sort of laughed about the saturn growing up Mm -hmm. and then as i got like you know older and started like you know like not tying my identity to my fandom of like certain consoles or publishers as much uh, as i did when i was a kid like i started looking back at these consoles and i'm like oh actually the saturn's really cool like it's really weird there's so many experiences you just can't get anywhere else Mm -hmm. and so like it wasn't that saturn was a bad console it's just it didn't offer what the mass gaming population kind of felt like they wanted, especially in the West and, and Sega. Yeah. Just, I don't know. I did, they just couldn't recover from that, that launch. It was just such a weird thing to do. And it became like a, you know, a meme before it was a meme. I think like it, it almost just <laughs> had a reputation at that point for being sort of weird and, and mm-hmm. like undercut and, and just couldn't recover from that, which is too bad. The Dreamcast kind of had that same uh, reputation. I feel like maybe a little less so because it did have some more mainstream hits, but you know, it was kind of just like the running joke of the gaming industry. The like, that's the odd man out. Um, But it, I mean, there's, there's always fun and interesting games on those kind of consoles. They, they might be few and far between, but it is fun to go back and look at what, what they did offer and you know, what people missed out on. Yeah. And it's funny because like in some ways I think three consoles is a lot for the market right but we've got three consoles now uh two of them are, are similar one of them is very different the switch and the playstation and the xbox but i think what happened like i think back then also like with the dreamcast and saturn th- there was maybe maybe three japanese consoles was too much because sega went away they left console manufacturing and, and 
like they were not a console maker anymore. That was replaced by Microsoft, which came in with this like Western ideology of like what a console could be. And it was more like, it was more like a computer, a PC mm-hmm. than the other ones. And I think that that maybe created some balance, but of course it's funny because the Xbox was then the opposite story of the the Saturn, right? Like it would sell, like I remember following like, you know, console sales uh, news back then with the 360 and they would sell like 200 units in Japan, like (laughs) over the course of a month, like which were probably all to like expat Americans too, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, it's just funny how like, you know, Sega with their sort of like Japanese driven ideology about about games and their real focus on like these unique Japanese experiences couldn't really cut it in the West. Microsoft, with its very Western focus, couldn't cut it in Japan and still struggles in Japan. So it's kind of interesting that, like, you know, three consoles in either region is almost a little bit, a little bit too much. Uh, We've maybe figured it out now, but I think that's in the West, like, all three seem to do pretty well. But uh, yeah, I don't know what Sega could have done because, man, the Saturn, it's cool. It's fun. It's a fun console. (laughs) What RPGs are there on the Saturn that you feel? are the best or that, you know, we missed out on here in North America. So, I mean, like the big one, the big MacGuffin costs like $1,600 Canadian. Um, I'm Canadian. So I know how much it costs in Canada. It's about 1600 bucks. Uh, is Panzer Dragoon Saga. And it's like, it's really unique. Um, I haven't played it because it's $1,600. Yeah. Uh, but I am going to give it a shot now. I just played through the original Panzer Dragoon uh, yesterday. I'm going to play through Panzer Dragoon's way uh, sometime this week, and then I'll probably play Panzer Dragon Saga coming up. It's like this 15-hour RPG. It's just very unique in the world and the way that you you know fight on dragon, uh, the back of a dragon, and you have this sort of tactical real-time combat system. It's very unique. A lot of people who play it love it, but nobody can play it because a like the Saturn has always traditionally been pretty hard to emulate, and that's uh, changed. Like now, Saturn emulation has gotten a lot better, and so it's a bit hmm. more accessible now. But it was just so, it's like printed in such small quantities. Like I think they printed 20,000 copies of the English release. Wow. Which is like very, yeah, very small. So it's it's just always been hard to get, right? And then the price is just, it was expensive before the pandemic. And now like everything's gone up so much that it's just out of reach for people. And so I think that's the one, you know, like if you did look into something like an ODE, uh, an optical drive emulator, it's one that I, I think people would want to, if they're interested in Japanese RPGs, like check it out right away. Remember that it is also like, you know, an early 3D game on a console that's like very specifically not great at 3D and does a lot of weird things. Like it uses square polygons instead Mm. of triangular polygons. So it's 3D games have a very unique look. And so like, you know, you have to keep that in mind. You put it up against other games and other RPGs of that time. And, you know, I would say it, you know, it's more visually the art. Art design's great, but visually the graphics are closer to, say, like, Grand Stream Sega than Final Fantasy IX or Vagrant Story, right? Yeah. And so um, that's the big one. I would say that's the big Saturn uh, JRPG. And it came out in the West. It's just impossible to get. Is uh, Did they make a remake of Panzer Dragoon Saga? Or was that a different Panzer no. Dragoon game? No, they, they remade the first Panzer Dragoon. Uh, so that came out in uh, 2019, maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, and that was just the first game, which is like a rail shooter, um, which, is, which is cool. Again, it has this really like sort of like melancholy post-apocalyptic setting and you're flying around on Dragonback. It kind of reminds me of um, Nausicaa. Oh, right. Valley of the Winds. Yeah, like that sort of like yeah. melancholy post-apocalyptic feel. It's pretty neat. 
takes about an hour to beat and you know it's fun for what it is so this is the sequel to that this was the sequel to that storyline wise there was a, another shooter rail shooter called panzer dragoon's way which came out in between the two of them and it was a prequel i think i believe it was mm. a prequel to the original panzer dragoon so there's like you know there's these two rail shooters and then a, an rpg that sort of like you know tells the story of the world around it i've played the first like hour or so and like it almost reminds me a bit of like um eco or shadow of the colossus in terms of its like tone and like the texture of the, its world and the feeling that it sort of evokes and that's just like really unique within like a japanese rpg right like it doesn't feel quite as um you know big and bombastic as something like the final fantasy series was at the time right and it doesn't feel like it calls back as much on like the 16-bit jrpgs like chrono trigger or fantasy star as like other japanese rpgs on the playstation were doing at the time um so it's very unique in in what it's trying to do the way it tells its story the feeling that you have as you're playing it um and, you know like you don't have a party you only ever play as like the main character on their dragon and i think you can get some like companions every once in a while but uh but yeah just very unique very you know interesting take on a genre that uh sometimes gets a little caught in its own nostalgia yeah one of the other cool things on, on the saturn right now is um it had a lot of uh or it had a few uh japanese rpgs that were also on playstation and that's how a lot of us experienced them like uh i mentioned grandia earlier and the saturn has a better version it was originally designed for the saturn so it has like you know the the improvements are minor for the most part but you know there's some texturing issues in the playstation version the water doesn't look quite as good so <laughs> you can play like this and it was only released in japan on the saturn but the fan community now has uh released a hack so you can like hack the game and add on the english script from the playstation oh. version to the japanese saturn version essentially giving you like the definitive version of the game right so you have the english text you have the better Saturn version with the better textures and better water, hmm. uh, better, like nicer looking combat. And so now you have this sort of definitive version of the game. And then another one that I'm like really excited for, as I, I mentioned it earlier, is Lunar Silver Star Story Complete. Um, it came out on the Saturn and the PlayStation. The PlayStation version made it to the West, but it was localized by working designs who are like notorious for having a really heavy hand with their localizations. Um, some people like the translation, like the actual like text and story. Some people don't. I really like it. I find it nice and warm and funny, and I still appreciate it. What I don't appreciate is that Working Designs also made the Western version on PlayStation like a lot grindier and harder. Hmm. They increased like the uh, damage that enemies do by I think forty five percent. They tweaked a whole bunch of stuff, so like the experience is like very much like you go into a dungeon, you make your way through a little bit, then you retreat, you know, like and refill your supplies, and then you go into the dungeon, you make it a little bit further, you retreat, refill your supplies, and then maybe on your third trip into the dungeon, you you beat it. It's very grindy, and it's very much like against the nature of the game the game is otherwise this very like earnest and kind-hearted like anime inspired jrpg mm -hmm. with very bright bubbly graphics very very like bouncy buoyant music and it feels like a saturday morning cartoon but then you play it and these enemies are just like crushing you <laughs> and like it's, it's super grindy and so, like, now the fan community has done the same thing they've done with Grandia, that you can take the original Japanese version with the easier difficulty and, like, way less grinding, and they've applied the English translation to it. So you can play a version with the original Japanese difficulty, um, 
but the English script. And so I've played Lunar a dozen times. Like I've played it so many times and I always like love the experience, but begrudgingly put up with the grinding. And now I have an experience, you know, an opportunity that I can play it without all of that and just enjoy the story as like sort of, you know, like a lighthearted romp as it was sort of originally intended to be by the, the original Japanese creators. And so I just think that that's pretty cool. Like seeing this coming together of like, you know, like these Japanese releases and then the fan community making them accessible on the uh the saturn um because that just opens the doors for more and more people to be able to find stuff that they like and, and games that they like um, then there was lots of like unique stuff like dragon force was like a strategy rpg that was you know little like ogre battle on the super nes little like final fantasy tactics a little bit like suikoden's combat like or like uh army combat uh where you know like it had larger scale battles between armies um and it's cool, and I never got to play it. I always remember looking at it in, in magazines and always wanting to play it, but but never being able to. So being able to check out stuff like that, and a game called Albert Odyssey, which was... Uh, <laughs> what kind of a name is that? Which is a great name. <laughs> I know, I know, Albert Odyssey. It's it's fantastic. Uh, it was based off uh, Super Nintendo like strategy RPG, and then they made like a full-blown like regular RPG mm. out of it, sequel for the Saturn. Um, and it's just a very traditional japanese rpg you don't get to play as albert einstein no you do not Darn as far it. as i know it is it is not about einstein or uh, any of his mathematical <laughs> theories but uh but yeah so like just lots of little like games like that that just never made it out they might have made it to the west but they never made it to the playstation and so like you know you're almost getting this like treasure trove of a new release like brand new playstation rpgs Right. Like, you know, if you loved that, yeah. that era of the genre and games like Albert Odyssey started on the Super Nintendo. So it's almost like getting an influx of like brand new late generation, like Super Nintendo RPGs or PlayStation RPGs, like just that you've never experienced before. Right. You have a lot of nostalgia for that time, but you don't have any nostalgia for these games themselves. And, and that's so unique. Right. Like it's very difficult for me to go back to the PlayStation and find something new to experience at this point because I've played mm -hmm. so many of the games. But, you know, the Saturn and its, it's untapped library uh, offers that, which is pretty fun. And do most of these ones that you've mentioned, do they have English translations floating out there somewhere? Um, most of them do like some of them like dragon force and albert odyssey they technically came out like they were released in the west but again mm -hmm. in small quantities so right. they're so expensive right there's no like if you didn't buy them back then it's really hard to get your hands on it now um right some of them like dragon force had a sequel dragon force 2 and it um wasn't released in the west but fans have translated it as well and so most of um the jrpgs that you know i've been looking at if uh if they weren't released in the west they have a fan translation at this point um and then that goes on to like stuff like uh hideo kojima's police knots has a fan translation and so you get these you know like visual novels and experiences that um mm. that are totally worth playing there's really fascinating like just because they're fun, but also because you kind of get a peek back at what some of the creators who are like super famous now were doing back when they were sort of younger and lesser known. Um, and I think Police Knots, and I think there's a port of Snatcher as well um, on the console that, you know, just gives you that glimpse of like what was going on. And like, especially in Japan at this time when other people, you know, we were kind of obsessed with what PlayStation was doing. Yeah. I mean, I was more of a Nintendo uh, kid growing up, I never owned a, a Sega console until I was an adult or 
a PlayStation console uh, at that. Yeah. I just remember looking through, you know, video game magazines at that age in my like, you know, middle school, elementary school days and thinking like, man, I wish I could try all these games, but I have no idea. You know, I don't have any friends with the Sega Saturn. I had a friend who got a Dreamcast and mm-hmm. that was like a big deal just because I got to, you know, play around with uh, Sonic Adventure and uh, Crazy Taxi and things like that. So it's always it's always good to put yourself out there and try new games if you have the opportunity. Obviously, cost and availability is, is an issue, but um, you'd be surprised who who has these things and um, you know all the different avenues that you can go down to find them and play them. Yeah, absolutely. And I was the same. I grew up as a Nintendo fan. Uh, I had a, I had a friend, one friend with a Genesis. Uh, I sort of made the jump over to, to PlayStation when Final Fantasy and Square moved to PlayStation. Uh, but I didn't know anybody with a Dreamcast or a Saturn or any of the Sega consoles. Um, so after that point, like I remember playing the Saturn at Toys R Us, right? <laughs> like yeah. I, I think I played Bug on a demo station, but like that was it. Like, you know, I had, pro- before I bought a Saturn, I had probably touched a controller for one, like five times in my life. Yeah. I don't even know if I've done that much. And see like, and the Dreamcast, same thing. Like I probably played a, I know I played Crazy Taxi at a electronics boutique mm-hmm. at some point. Right. But otherwise, you know, if you didn't know those friends, like it just, you, you know, as a kid, you know, I was fortunate that I did have more, like, you know, like I did have all the Nintendo consoles and then I also had a PlayStation and yeah. PlayStation two, but like, you know, you really had to kind of like pick your lane back then, uh, as a, as a kid, as I'm sure kids nowadays yeah. kind of have to like pick and choose, right. A little bit more. Um, I have to pick and choose. Like I can't afford a PlayStation <laughs> five, <laughs> yeah. right. I, even if I could find one on shelves, like I still, that's right. still an experience I don't have. I came to the PlayStation four quite late. Like I, I'm at still at a point where I'm like exploring the PlayStation four library just because I couldn't afford to, to get one for a long time. So, you know, it's, it's fun if you can sort of, you know, remove yourself from, from feeling like you, you know, have to defend your choices and recognize like, oh, okay, this is just an opportunity to find like so many experiences that I haven't had before and, and understand why some people like, you know, loved their Sega consoles just as much as I loved my Super Nintendo or whatever. Yeah, I think my big one was um, for the Dreamcast especially was when I kind of uh, dove into Power Stone and uh, the fighting game, mm-hmm. which, you know, has some kind of Smash Brothers vibes to it with like the environmental uh, beat em up stuff. And uh, I played it while I was actually in Japan at a bar with my wife and i was like man like i love this gameplay like you know it's, it's kind of a hard game to yeah. find uh you know in english yeah. but it, it really like i was like here's this whole this series i guess just two three games but like man they're so cool i had no idea they existed really and now i have the ability to experience yeah. them so yeah exactly the dreamcast is, is like full of those things meanwhile like you know i knew power stone existed but like we were just playing Destrega on the playstation it was like mm-hmm. you know and sort of a four-player overhead fighting game where you were these monsters and it was not nearly as good as power stone but you kind of like you had what you had right right um yeah. you enjoyed that too like you know part of the the issue now i have so many options as an adult you know i'm looking over beside me at like where i've got my old console set up and there's seven of them eight of them right and then like how many games are that and how much time do i really have to play right yeah you know like most of my time these days is is devoted to like playing old japanese rpgs because i need to write about them right so like you know as i was working on my book i was going back and revisiting games like final fantasy 7 and um new ones like finding new ones like breath of fire 4 that i had never played before and you know you just you only have so much time and, and so 
you know, it's right. good to be able to love what lo love what you've got access to, but also recognize that like, you know, if you have that opportunity, go after it because, you know, like yeah. I, said, I used to laugh at the, the Saturn, right? Like I was maybe envious <laughs> of, a, of a few games here and there, but for the most part, it was a joke among me and my friends. And now yeah. I, now I'm finally, you know, like 20 years later, getting to, to find out what the fuss was about. And it's, it's some of the most fun I've had in gaming, like for the longest time. And it's these, these yeah. kind of old, funny, weird Saturn games that never left Japan and never could have, right? Like they never would have <laughs> sold units in. Oh in yeah. The West, they would right? have done horribly um, here. It's like yeah. the perfect machine to just like find something random and flip it on for an hour and just play, see what's going on. And like, and sometimes it's radiant silver gun. You're like, Whoa, this is, I don't even really like schmops, but like, this is really good. <laughs> and sometimes it's some like random, you know, like game that you just, you're like, yeah, okay. I can see why this one never really, never really came out never really made waves. But, uh, but there's just like a really high level of creativity on that platform that I really admire. I think, We've given people plenty of recommendations. Obviously, not much of what we talked about today, at least in terms of the Sega Saturn stuff, is in your book. So there's a lot more to be discovered. Uh, where can people find this book? It's just everywhere, right? It's on Amazon. It's on Books A Million everywhere else, right? Yeah, anywhere you can buy books, you'll be able to get uh, get my book, Fight Magic Items. I try to push people towards you know indie bookstores. It's really great to support those uh, those independent booksellers. Right. Uh, if they don't have it in their store, they'll be able to order it in for you. And if they order your copy, hopefully they'll order you know a couple for the shelves as well. But you can also get it on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes and Noble, Chapters, anywhere uh, anywhere you can get books. It's called Fight Magic Items. Fantastic. All right. Well, where can people find you online if they uh, want to reach out or uh, follow you? So um, I made a website for Fight Magic Items. It has everything you need to know about the book. It has excerpts. It has, you know, like tons of links to where you can buy it. It has review blurbs. It has links also to where the book's been featured or podcasts I've been on. There will be a link to this podcast. <laughs> uh, you can find that at fightmagicitems.rocks. R-O-C-K-S. So, you know, Fight Magic Items rocks. Uh, you can find that there. Uh, it's been really fun to have like a one-stop shop for um, for the book. And otherwise, I'm on Twitter like just way too much. And my um, my handle there is a dribble of ink. So A-D-R-I-B-B-L-E-O-F-I-N-K, a dribble of ink. It's uh, the same as my old blog. Um, so you can find that, you know, by Googling my name quite easily. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you know, we might have to have you on again in the future to learn some more about JRPGs or Absolutely. whatever it is you want to uh, come in and talk to us about. Because I have, I have a feeling that you yeah. have an overwhelming knowledge of uh, obscure games and, uh, you know, consoles and such. Yeah, I have a, a lot of experience and I've learned a lot on, along the way. So uh, happy to chat anytime. Today's bonus episode was made possible by our lovely patrons. If you enjoy video game history and enjoy reading or hearing about it, we highly recommend that you check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash memcard. That's patreon.com slash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. Upcoming bonus episodes that we have planned for the next few months will come to patrons early, and we mean early by about half a year. If you'd like to support us and hear all of our episodes early and ad-free, we hope you'll check it out. Don't forget to follow Memory Card on Twitter, at MemCardShow, and you can follow me, Ben Bertoli, on Twitter, at SuperBentendo. 
See you soon.